Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians again. We're turning to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be reading from the verse 18 through to the verse 26. Philippians chapter 1. And we're reading from the verse 18 through to the verse 26. We're speaking this morning under the title, Finding Joy in Chains. Last week we considered the gospel in chains. And this week we suppose we could actually call it finding personal joy in chains. Because Paul turns very personal here and begins to speak about himself. And we read from verse 18 in Philippians chapter 1. This is Paul's word. And it reads, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I walk not. For I am in a state betwixt two, having a desire to depart, and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your fervence and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's just pray with God's word open upon our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. It is perfect. We thank you for your word, for we hear your voice as we read it. And Father, we pray that by your spirit you will minister to each of our hearts this morning. We thank you, Father, that we have opened the living word of God, which is ever relevant in our day. We thank you, Father, that it can be applied to our hearts today. Father, as we're challenged from your word this morning, Father, we just pray that you would give us open hearts. That, Father, we would be receptive of your word. And that, Father, we would go out and live it as we leave this place later on. Grant our prayer. We pray this in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Last Lord's Day in verse 12 through the 18. We looked at how the suffering of the Apostle Paul affected the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We took time to look at the effect of his witness even there in the prison with the palace guard. And you remember those battle-hardened men, those Roman soldiers that he would have been chained to. And Paul would have spent hours at times with them. And he saw this as an opportunity to share the gospel with those men he was even chained to. And of course, not even just that, but as he shared the gospel with those soldiers, those soldiers were getting saved. And they were going back to their barracks and they would have been sharing the gospel with those in Rome. And therefore the gospel was spreading through Paul's witness to those Roman soldiers he was chained to. But also not only was Paul's chains an opportunity to witness to the soldiers, but it gave others, the people of the Lord who lived there in Rome, the, the confidence to go out 
and to share the gospel themselves. Where there, there were some who were inspired by Paul, who was witnessing there in his prison experience, and they went out and they shared Christ because they loved Christ, because they wanted to make Christ known, and they were looking at Paul, and off they went. But of course there were others, and we could say that they had a personality clash with Paul, I suppose. And they were preaching the gospel so that Paul's chains would become worse, and his prison experience would become worse. Nevertheless, Paul rejoiced, didn't he? Because we read in verse 18 this morning and last week, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. They were preaching the gospel, and whether it was to make Paul's experience worse, or whether it was to make Paul's, whether it was just to preach Christ with the right attitude, Christ was being preached. And therefore, Paul rejoiced, and that's what he says, and that therein I do rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. You know, fundamentally, Paul's joy in his suffering was simply that Christ was being made known. And that was his one aim in life. He wanted to make Christ known. And whether he was in a prison cell or whether he was out in the streets, all Paul was about was sharing the gospel message and walking for the Lord and his journey towards heaven. You know, Warren Wearsby writes this, we well, can a couple of points there. And um, Warren Wearsby writes, Because of Paul's chains, Christ was known. And because of Paul's credits, Christ was preached. But because of Paul's crisis, Christ is magnified. Have a look at verse 20 there. I think this is a great statement that Paul makes. And we're going to be considering it later on. But I think this is an important statement. Paul says this, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, and listen to this, but that with all boldness as always, so now also listening, Christ shall be magnified in my body. That's a key line. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, I encourage you to underline that when you get home. It says there, Christ shall be magnified in my body. What a mantra. What a chorus to live your life by. That you want Christ to be magnified in your life. You know, when we think of that and you consider Paul's circumstances, he had every right to be sorrowful. And he had every right not to be joyful at all. Ever since his conversion, that you read in Acts chapter 9, you don't even get out of Acts chapter 9 before Paul's being persecuted. The Jews were already plotting to have him killed before you get out of Acts chapter 9. And even worse than that, before you get out of Acts chapter 9, the church, the church, God's people, had rejected him. You know, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul recites some of the things that he endured. He said this, I am, I am in far more labors and far more imprisonments, I'm beaten times without number, I'm often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, three times I've been beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, 
often left out food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of the concern of all the churches. That's a lot of sorrow. That's a lot of anxiety. And in his ministry, he was forsaken by his friends. He said on one occasion, all in Asia have forsaken me. He had then went on, he says, only Timothy understands my heart, and he's the only one I can send to represent myself. And you know, the churches that Paul invested a great portion of his time in, many of them fell into sin at times, and sometimes gross sin, an erroneous theology. And Paul had great reason to be sad, and to say nothing of and to say, say nothing of his continual sorrow for his own people would be wrong this morning because he even expressed in Romans chapter 9 that he was sorrowful over the lost state of his people Israel. He sorrowed and he was sad because of his lost nation. It's the sadness of a pastoral love. He had the disappointment of people who he poured his life into, who shared with him hostility and, and threats, and he had pain and agony and bodily injury, and he ended up in prison in nearly every place he went. You know, it was no wonder that Paul maybe would have arrived in the city and he wouldn't have been asking what the hotel's like. He would have been asking what's the prison like because he would end up there sooner or later. But in spite of all that, in spite of all that, he never lost his joy. Why is that? See, this morning we're going to learn something about Paul's personal joy. I like this wee line in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Do you know what it says there? He says, sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. What a lovely line. I think that's really Paul's life in a nutshell. Sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. From our verses this morning, I want you to see Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. Look at verse 19. This is what he says. For I know this shall turn to my salvation. I no. Can you hear Paul's testimony? It's sure. He says, I know. He doesn't say, I think this shall turn to my salvation. He doesn't say, I hope this will turn to my salvation. He says, I know. I know. Salvation was a certainty to Paul. Now some think that Paul was speaking of his deliverance from his current prison experience when he speaks of his salvation here. And others believe that Paul was speaking of the salvation of his soul. I believe in the context of the passage, it's the latter. When we consider how further down the passage, Paul's desire is to depart and be with Christ. I believe that Paul is ultimately speaking here about the salvation of his soul. And the Greek word used here for the word salvation is soteria. And this Greek word can be translated to the verb to be saved. It has a three-strand meaning. This is really important this morning. The first strand of it is the past. The past. And Paul spoke of this past experience of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. When he reminded the Ephesians of a time that they could back, look back to when they heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. From that time, many of the Ephesians could look back and they could say, On that day, the Lord Jesus Christ saved me from my sin. They could look back to a personal experience 
When they realized that they were a sinner and in great need of a saviour and they looked to the cross work of Calvary and they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Young people in the meeting this, this afternoon, let me speak to you for just a moment. I wonder is there a day that you can look back on and say that you were saved. I hope you aren't depending on your mum and dad's salvation. I hope you're not depending on your family's salvation. I hope you're not depending on just coming along to this wee church on your, the, the say that you're saved. You need a personal experience. You need to put your trust in the Lord Jesus. For all of us here today, both old and young, I wonder if there a day in the past that you can put your finger on me and say, that was the day. That was the day that the Lord Jesus Christ met me in my room. And I placed my trust in him. I realized I was a sinner, a great sinner, in need of a great saviour, and that you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for you, and you bowed the knee, and you thanked him for dying for you, and asked him to save you. I wonder do you have a day in your life's experience that you can look back and praise the Lord and say, He saved me. He saved me. But not only does this word salvation speak of a past day that the Lord met us and saved us, but there's a present aspect to your salvation. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul speaks of this. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace ye are saved through faith. Paul says to you, dear child of God, right now, in this very present moment, you are saved. I think that's a wonderful thought. You see, later on in the book of Philippians, Paul will use the present tense version of this word, superior salvation, when he encourages the Philippians to work out their own salvation. We'll explore that in a few weeks' time. But the third and final strand of this Greek word, soteria, salvation, is found in a future day when faith will be turned to sight. And every day we spend on earth, we are one step closer to the future day when we will live without sin and will no longer be marred by the inner sinful man. And Paul writes in Romans 13 verse 11, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When faith is turned to sight. And that day we will be face to face with Christ our Saviour. Doesn't the hymn writer say, face to face with Christ my Saviour? Face to face, what will it be? Where with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. One day we'll stand before him. And we'll worship him there eternally with a sinless heart. And it'll be a wonderful day. Isn't it wonderful to know today that Christianity will end with triumph. You know, it doesn't matter what the intellect say today. It doesn't matter what the religionist says today. It doesn't matter what the politician says today. It doesn't matter what kings and queens say today. Young people, it doesn't matter what social media influencers say today. Christ is 
one day will sit on the throne of David and Christianity and the gospel will triumph and sin will be no more and we will live in sinless perfection. Paul, even locked in a Roman prison cell, he says this, he says, I know this shall turn to my salvation. I know that Christianity will triumph. I know the end of the story and Christ shall reign and we will be part of his kingdom forever and ever. This brought the apostle great joy. The gospel will triumph. In fact, it was already triumphing there in Paul's day because of his experience, souls were being saved. And today the gospel continues to triumph. Do you know why? Souls are still being saved. And one day sin and death will be no more. And the gospel will be victorious over all. Let me tell you something. Today around our world there are countries where Christianity is oppressed and Christians are persecuted. And do you know what? In those places is where the church is growing most rapidly. I want to tell you, I remember the principal of the Faith Mission Bible College while I was there. And it was Pastor Robert Murdoch. And Robert Murdoch and had the opportunity to go and speak at a Bible conference in South Korea while I was there. When he came back, he said to me, Peter, there are hundreds of thousands being saved over there. It's like walking into a revival. And I think that's an amazing thing. And let me tell you that why in our world sometimes we can have that tunnel vision. Do you know what I mean by that? Where you just look forward, you're not looking around, you're just looking here in our own little part of the world. Maybe we don't see as many saved today in Northern Ireland as we would like to see. But let me encourage you to have a world view. God is still on the throne. And God is still in the business of saving souls. And he is working in our world. And he's saving souls and we should rejoice. And God is still working in our way country too. Because souls are being saved every day. But get a world view. God is still on the throne, and God is saving souls. Even in the most oppressed places, God is working. You know, Christianity, it will triumph. Look at verse 6 of this chapter, and see Paul's confidence in this. Paul says this, we can be confident. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He was confident. It's wonderful. He was confident in God's sovereignty. That God was on the throne. He was confident in the sovereignty of a holy God who began a work in us and will continue to do it. Who has begun this work in a wee embryo in a church in the day of Pentecost. And it's growing and it will keep growing. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it until one day the church will triumph in glory. But when we speak of the sovereignty of God, we must voice some caution. Although we believe in the sovereignty of God, we find in verse 19 that there's also responsibility to men. I want to quote a great Scottish reformer when he said, Do not believe in any form of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. I'll say that again. We do not believe in any form of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. God's sovereignty doesn't turn us into robots. Now this is important. 
So I need you to listen to this wee bit carefully. We see, we see man's responsibility in verse 19. Paul was thinking, thanking the Philippians that his salvation would come through their prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that Paul was saved by the prayers of the people. That's not what Paul's talking about. Far from it. But what Paul is saying is this. From the moment that God saved him until the moment that he stands in eternity, he would be, humanly speaking, relying on the prayers of God's people for him to keep him strong in the faith. And also relying on the Spirit of God that dwells in him, who is a witness to the Father that he is the child of God. I wonder if you see the balance. It's Christ's finished work at Calvary. And the work of the Holy Spirit that will get us to glory. But don't ever negate the responsibility that we have ourselves to be praying for one another. That our faith would be strong. That we would continue strong in the faith. I don't want to rush this because there's real challenges that need taught here. Paul says in verse 19, through your prayer. Through your prayer. Dear believer, your prayer. Your prayer is important. Have you prayed this morning before coming to the meeting? Have you? Have you spent time with the Lord already today, gleaning from his word, asking for the Lord's blessing upon his people as they meet today, asking that the Lord would meet with you? Have you spent time today looking at a wee list of the needs of our wee local assembly, of the folk that are in great need of prayer? Have you spent time praying for them? Did you consider coming to the prayer meeting before our service and praying for your brothers and sisters that the Lord would come and bless us today? Firstly, I trust that you do pray for one another in your private prayer. But I wonder, are you finding times at the times of corporate prayer? Are you at the prayer meetings? I want to speak to you right now from a pastor's heart to congregation. It concerns me greatly that there are some who are regularly absent from prayer meetings. And may the Lord forgive you for it. For it's at the prayer meeting. It's at the prayer meeting that the list of the needs of this fellowship is read. And someday your name might be put in that list. And you'll expect God's people to pray for you. But you aren't present listening to the needs of this fellowship and those who need prayer and heart. We need to be praying for one another. We need more people to have a burden to be at the prayer meetings before our church services in the midweek. That we would know the power of God. I want to tell you that we room at the back where we need to pray before a service. That's the engine room. And when we meet together to pray, it's the engine room because it's us coming before the Lord as a congregation saying, Lord, we have great need of you. You come and bless us. You know, the prayers of God's people helped Paul while he was in prison to withstand the temptation to deny the Lord. Your prayers for your brethren and sisters could be the very thing that the Lord uses to sustain them. Paul wanted not to be ashamed in that day when he finally was with the Lord. One of the strengthening aspects was the prayers of the believers of the Church of Philippi. I wonder do you spend time praying for one another? Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. He said, I know this shall bring to my salvation through your prayer. 
and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to see Paul's expectation. Paul's expectation. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says here, it says here, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so not also Christ shall be magnified in my body. There's his mantra. Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by light or by death. Paul's expectation was that for living for Christ and dying for Christ, that Christ would be magnified. What was Paul's earnest expectation? What was his goal? His goal that he wouldn't was that he wouldn't be ashamed, but that he would be bold to proclaim Christ and magnify him. You know, he speaks about magnifying Christ in life and in death. Do you know what that teaches us? It teaches us when Paul speaks about death that Paul always had his eye on the finish line. That Paul always had his eye on finishing well for Christ. And he didn't know when his life would finish, nor do you, nor do I. But Paul's attitude was that he was going to run well for Christ. No man, no woman knows when their life will end. But no matter when Paul's life was ended, he was determined to finish well. And that meant living well today, and living well every day for Christ. Let me ask you, if this were to be your last day on earth, would you be ashamed of how you lived for Christ today? Would you be ashamed of how you lived for Christ in the past week? You know, when I ask these questions, I feel condemned in my own heart. Can I ask you, are you occupied with one thing in life? And is it that one day you'll stand before Christ and you'll give an account of how you live for him? I read about one pastor and he simply printed from his printer the word Bema. Bema. That's what you and I will stand before. That's the judgment seat of Christ for the child of God, Bema. And he put it up on his wall behind his desk. And he looked at it every morning and it reminded him that one day he'll give an account of how he lived today. For the Lord. Paul says later on in this letter, Brethren, I find not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark of the high of, of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He expended every effort as he runs towards the finish line, running for Christ. And Paul needed a focus, and we need a focus today, and that's the one day we'll stand before the Lord. We need the prayers of the saints. We need the power of the Spirit. Oh, we're saved, and God has begun a good work in us, and he will accomplish it, and praise the Lord, he will accomplish it, but we're not exempt from responsibility along the way, and we will give a account of how we live. When Paul talks about not being ashamed, he's talking about the judgment seat. Not being ashamed when he stands before the Lord and gives his account. And he, when he gets there, you see, the judgment day for the child of God, it's rarely preached on. And so it leads to, it leads to lower standards, and it leads to liberal thinking, and it leads to poor attitude. You would think sometimes when you listen to people preaching, one day when we get to heaven, like it's some kind of graduation. 
that, that someday we're going to stand before the Savior, hand us a certificate, he'll give us a pat on the back and say, well done, thy good and faithful service, enter into the, jo- the joy prepared by thy Lord. That's not it. You look at Revelation, you read of the fiery, penetrating eyes of Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of, Son of God, and you tell me that the day will be a comfortable experience. John talked of it in his first epistle in chapter 2 and verse 28. He says, His little children abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Paul was concerned that the believers pray for him, that the Spirit supply would be given to him because he didn't want to be ashamed in the day when he stood before the demon. I wonder will you, will I, be ashamed of the way we live? Paul didn't want to be ashamed of the way he lived and the way he died. He wanted to die as a courageous soldier of Jesus Christ. He didn't want to be ashamed of how he suffered. What will Christ's verdict be of me? How will I have lived for him when I stand there? Is Christ magnified in my body? Is Christ magnified in yours? My time is gone and We'll pick up these verses next Lord's Day, but let me ask you, is Christ magnified in your body and your life? Will he be magnified in your death? One Sunday on the way home from church, a little girl turned to her mother and said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning confused me. And the mother said, well, why is that? And the little girl, she replied, well, the preacher said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Mother said, Yes, that's, that's right, Mother. And the little girl went on, He also said that God lives in us. Is that true, Mother? The mother said, Yes, for those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, that's right. God the Spirit lives in you. Well, said the little girl, If God is bigger than us and He lives in us, wouldn't He show through? Is God magnified? Does God show through in the way that He lives? The American evangelist D.L. Moody once said this, a Christian is the world's Bible, and some of them need revising. It's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. We're told to let our light shine, and if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. The light will be its own witness. Lighthouses don't need to ring a bell. Fire comes to call attention to their shining. They just shine. I wonder is Christ magnified? Does your light shine bright in a dark world of sin? May the Lord help us to run well. To magnify him both in life and in death.